This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. What is the story of Christmas all about? You know, we know the basics, Bethlehem, Mary, Joseph, a stable, manger, shepherds, angels. But I question sometimes whether or not we are still gripped with wonder at the Christmas story and what it tells us about the character and the plan of God. So there's something so appropriate about having kids retell the Christmas story. I know that recapturing wonder at familiar things in my life has often been accomplished through my kids. And so I think these kids have done a remarkable job, don't you? Yeah. Many people read the Bible as if it's a sort of uh, Aesop's fables. You remember Aesop's fables? A little bit dated now. I'm not sure that it's as mainstream as it once was. Short, memorable tales with a moral at the end. But I would ask you to consider the Bible as a single story, not a collection of isolated stories, but a single unified story. And if that's the case, then we really can't understand the Christmas story unless we've understood what comes before it. So once upon a time, there lived a man and a woman. They were the happiest human beings who have ever lived. God had created them in his own image little mirrors to reflect his character and his ways. And like everything else God had made, he made them exceedingly good. But one very bad day, Adam and Eve ate from the one tree God told them not to eat from. And it was their disobedience that messed them up and messed all of creation up. And not only had Adam and Eve become the kind of people who no longer reflect God's character and ways, they could no longer stay in the paradise God had made for them. And so they were expelled. See, the beginning of the story sets up a tension that Christmas significantly resolves. If you're reading the Bible as a single story, then you're probably at this point in the story asking two fundamental questions. The first question is, how do human beings once again enter and live in God's dwelling place, paradise? Adam and Eve had been kicked out. How do they get back in? And the second question you're probably asking yourself is, how do human beings become what God had originally created them to be? See, there were two problems. Because of their sin, Adam and Eve weren't where they were supposed to be, and they weren't who they were supposed to be. Much of the rest of the Old Testament follows the ups and downs of a nation, Israel. Very early in Israel's existence, God had given them laws to follow, 613 to be specific. If Israel could faithfully live these out, they would once again be the kind of people God had originally created human beings to be. And by being the kind of people God created them to be, they would permanently enjoy where they were supposed to be in the presence of God. 
But the Old Testament reads like the movie Groundhog Day. The details differ slightly from day to day, but the result is the same. They can't do it. They wake up each morning. They live through another day of failures. So in order to deal with their failures, God institutes a sacrificial system where some poor, unfortunate animals would be blamed for the sins of the people and sacrificed. Now, the Old Testament, while it's primarily about Israel, is actually telling a story about all of humanity. It actually tells a story of you and me. Sin separates us from God's dwelling place. It separates us from paradise. It raises the problem of how we ought to be held accountable for our failures, and it prevents us from being the kind of people God created us to be. So how does Christmas help resolve these issues? Jesus lived roughly 33 years on this planet. Why? Why? Why not come to earth on a Friday as a grown man? Could have done that. We are talking about God. Why not come to earth as a grown man on a Friday, die on that Friday, come back to life on Sunday, take care of the whole cross business in a single weekend? Sounds like a 21st century thing to do. Well, the answer is, we don't just need the death of Christ. We need the life of Christ. Look up here. Christians will be saved by works. Period. Christians will once again enter the dwelling place of God, paradise, by works. The question is, by whose works will you be saved? If you're banking on being saved by your moral performance in this life, you will be stuck in a perpetual spiritual groundhog day. But part of what it means to be a Christian is that you're banking on being saved by Jesus' works. So on that Christmas day, Jesus began to live the perfect life we should have lived, but failed to. And that sacrificial system I mentioned earlier, where some poor, unfortunate animals would be blamed for the sins of the people, Jesus became our ultimate sacrifice, dying in our place the death our sins rightly deserved. So two questions that you must answer, two questions that ought to fuel wonder this Christmas season. First is, by whose works will you enter God's dwelling place? Yours or Jesus's? Second, who will pay for your sins? You or Jesus? I hope the answer's clear. Someone may be thinking, how? 
How does Jesus do this? How can I be assured I'll enter the dwelling place of God by the works of Christ and the death of Christ? Really, what you're asking is, what is a Christian? You know, the word Christian is used just three times in the New Testament. Twice in Acts, once in 1 Peter. Seems a bit strange, considering how often we use the word. The New Testament writers had a different way of describing Christians. They would use the phrase, in Christ. That phrase is used over 150 times in the Bible. A Christian is someone who is in Christ. Rory Shiner in his book, One Forever, describes our oneness with Jesus using the analogy of airplane travel. He writes, if you want to get to Australia, then finding a flight to Sydney is a good idea. But it would be a strange traveler who goes to London Heathrow Airport, finds the relevant Boeing 747, and then sprints down the runway hoping to follow after its general direction. Neither does the traveler watch the plane awestruck from the lounge and seek inspiration for their own powers of flight. No, if the traveler wants to get to Sydney, there is one relationship they must have to the plane. They need to be in it. Then everything that's happening to the plane will happen to the traveler. This is a Christian's connection to Jesus. Jesus is not merely an example to follow, He's not just our inspiration to admire. He's our champion. See, the Christian life is not fundamentally about copying Jesus' actions, though that does become our great joy. It's not at heart about admiring Jesus from a distance, though we certainly do admire him. Fundamentally, Christianity is about being united to Jesus. A Christian is one with Christ. So what do I do to become one with Jesus? What do I do to become united with Christ, to be in Christ? Many of you know this verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In the New Testament, the word for believe and the word for faith are the same. But a popular picture of faith that many modern people carry around with them in their heads is provided by none other than Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. You remember the scene? Indy has to make the leap of faith. You remember that? He's got to step out into the void, not knowing whether anything will catch him. We are all on the edge of our seats, watching with bated breath as he summons up the requisite belief, and then boldly and blindly he makes the leap. Is that what faith is? Not at all. Believing in Jesus isn't a bold leap in the dark. We're not capable of bold leaps towards Jesus. It's actually Jesus who crosses the void towards us. In John 3, 16, the verse I just read, Jesus is regarded as a gift. Therefore, believing in Jesus means receiving a gift. Earlier in John's gospel, we read this, yet to all who did receive Jesus, 
to those who believed in Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. So receiving him, believing in his name, they're parallel phrases. Receiving Jesus is the same as believing in his name. There is a gift offered to the world. The father gives the son, and a Christian is someone who recognizes the gift and says, yes, please. Now you might think, how can you receive a person? Receiving a present from under the tree, I get. I understand that, but how do you receive a person? Well, think of a couple on their wedding day. What's happening there? They receive each other into their lives. They say, yes, please, to the offer of the other. And from then on, they live in a united relationship of love and trust. After saying I do, neither of them think, great, I'm in. Now I can do whatever I want. No, in a great marriage, they will spend the rest of their lives delighting in each other and seeking to please each other. Receiving the gift of Jesus is much the same. The Father offers his Son, and we receive him. And from that moment on, we are united to him. The rest of our lives are spent delighting in Jesus and seeking to please him. So let me go back to the original two questions. How do human beings once again enter and live in God's dwelling place, paradise? And how do human beings become what God had originally created us to be? The short answer is Jesus. The short answer is being united to Christ. You see, Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live. God's word says again and again and again, we're given credit for the perfect life Jesus lived through faith, believing, receiving him. Jesus also died the death that our sins rightly deserved. Do you realize that what happened on the cross is that Jesus got blamed for every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit? That's what's happening at the cross. So take a minute to think. Are you in Christ? Have you received the gift of Jesus? Do you believe Jesus Live the perfect life you could never live and died in your place the death that your sins rightly deserved? And is your life now characterized by delighting in Jesus and seeking to please him? Let me ask this question. If Jesus was sitting next to you and you turned to him and you asked him, Jesus, how are things between the two of us? What would his answer be? Would you bow your heads, close your eyes, Jesus, We want to consider all you've done for us.
willingly leaving behind heaven to enter our sin-stained, injustice-saturated world, to live a flawlessly righteous life and die a criminal's death so that sinners like us could be brought into union with you. Jesus, when we consider this, forgive us for our indifference towards you. So often we care for you no more than we care for a tin can in the ditch. Forgive us for that. Jesus, forgive us for all the times we've made you a hobby rather than Lord and Master. Forgive us for the myriad of ways in which we set you aside because our interest is in other things. Some here, Jesus, are not united to you. There's no plea I can make that will change that. We are dependent on you to give them eyes to see and ears to hear. So I call upon you to do that. Recapture our hearts. Recapture our thoughts. Recapture our wonder of who you demonstrated yourself to be in the life you lived and the death you died. the remaining time you give us breath. May we delight in you, Jesus. We ask in your name. Amen.